This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. From the Business Radio studio in New York City, this is Purpose Built. Purpose Built. Here's your host, Joey Swillinger. Welcome to Purpose Built. Uh, I'm Joey Swillinger. I am the co-founder and co-CEO of Alberts. And we started Purpose Built because we wanted to uh, recognize that stability that's traditionally come from governments and big institutions that we think of as, as very long term, they're not always doing the job that we need for society right now. And I think business leaders in particular are starting to recognize this and and prioritizing businesses that do something more than just make money for investors. They, they, they build businesses with a purpose. And so uh, we wanted to put this, this series together and talk with entrepreneurs, business leaders, and executives about doing something in, in the private sector, but doing it for more than just making money. So this show, this show is really about companies that are purpose-built. And today, we are extremely fortunate to be joined by Nick Leshley. I'll give you a little quick background on Nick, and then I want to hand it over to him and, and, and let you guys hear from, from Nick directly. So Nick, brilliant, brilliant guy, came over from Denmark. Uh, his parents are both Danish, moved over as a young kid. He studied molecular biology as an undergrad at Princeton, went on to do an MBA at Wharton and at the Penn at UPenn. And then he jumped right into biotech, pharma, and and really saving people's lives and doing it through the private sector uh, at a, a company that was ended up being quite phenomenally successful called Millennium Pharmaceuticals, and then jumped over on the investing side with, uh, with a company called Third Rock, which is one of the really great success stories in biotech investing. And one of those investments was Bluebird, and and Nick took a plunge, and we'll we'll get we'll get his story about why that is. Um, so so um, with that, I, I'm not going to try to explain what Bluebird does because it's extremely complicated. So hopefully, uh, Nick, who who I've learned is is well known for oversharing in his parts, <laughs> is going to do a great job of making sure that uh, that he that he that he gets everyone on the same page here. So first, Nick, if you could just just give us a start of how the company started, when you joined, what it looked like, and, and generally what what you guys do. This is a, I still think of it as a, a small upstart company um, called Bluebird. And what we focus on is really diseases where there's a genetic problem that is basically a genetic death sentence. And we think about, well, how can you possibly not just ameliorate that, but how can you fix that? And so the, the genesis behind this company was actually in, in another incarnation started all the way back in 1993 with people who dreamed about something called gene therapy. Mm. And what that basically means is if you have a genetic problem, can you go in and actually fix it at the DNA level? Not just kind of try to ameliorate or give a drug that makes you feel better, but how can you actually try to fix something? So that's always been the promise of gene therapy, but it's been remarkably difficult, as you can imagine, to go So that's literally that. going into a patient's blood, taking something out, and and changing something. Is, exactly. And that's personalized for the, for the individual? Exactly. In our case, we work on diseases, some of which you'll have heard about, like cancer, and some of which you'll have heard, like sickle cell disease. Um, where literally we do just what you describe, which is, and I'll walk you through a little bit of science fiction. We can try to simplify it. Yeah, but basically, please. we use your blood stem cells that sit in the bone marrow that we know turn on and turn into very different cells throughout your body that then produce things that you need, proteins and others. And in any one of these diseases, some of those cells go awry. They can't do what they're supposed to do. So what we basically do is we take out your blood stem cells in that case. And interestingly enough, we actually use a virus to put a piece of DNA into those cells. Mm-hmm meaning we actually just uh, use a virus for good. And outside the body, we fix these cells, right? So we insert a piece of DNA that now can do what that cell could not do before. In the case of uh, sickle cell or in the case of thalassemia, you can't make enough hemoglobin or blood to stay alive or or stay healthy. So we introduce a gene that can do just that. Mm. Then we take those cells outside the body and we give them back to you. And interestingly enough, it homes on its own to the bone marrow. And then it takes up residence in the bone marrow. And that's why the word stem cell, meaning it lives on in perpetuity. So if you think about it, if that works, you've just fixed at a root level, sort of a cellular level, the disease. So those cells then go on to divide. And every time they divide, what happens? 
it goes along for the ride because you've changed the DNA. So this is a panacea. Like it, it fixes you for good. If you can do it right in enough cells, in enough times, and you can get to that So one-time treatment and it fixes you for good. One-time potentially curative treatment of a number of these diseases is certainly objective. And we've come a lot further than honestly I ever imagined uh, we would uh, as part yeah. of Bluebird. And we'll get into that. But that's the, that's the theory. So how do you think about one-time transformative treatments as opposed to how do you figure out a way to deal totally with Totally different. I want to get into that later. Yep. Um, and I think it's fascinating to talk about that but before i'd love to just get back to you're at third rock uh i imagine knowing what i know about how third rock has done since you left you had the opportunity to make an absolute fortune and you decided to jump into bluebird why did you think that it was a good opportunity personally was there something in your personal background was it just an amazing business that you saw in a visionary way that nobody else saw or what why'd you do that um it's it's a it's a good question, and sometimes you look back and you say, "Wow, that was a little crazy." But I think the biggest risk in life, to some extent, is not not going for it, right? I think not sort of taking risks that are important to you and you're passionate about. Um, the notion of probabilizing how much money you make that's never been high on my list. But the notion of, and I remember sitting with Dr. Bob Tepper, who was one of the partners at Third Rock, saying, "Should I do this?" And he says, "Why wouldn't you try to do something that's never been done before? Even if it's not successful, it's a very valiant." effort and it's time and we will be able to fund this in a significant way to give it a real run. So that sort of part of us saying, well, all right. And the other half of it was, I'm not really a, I don't think I'm a particularly good investor. So that's, that's <laughs> one. And so, but getting into something and getting passionate about a specific idea and saying, let's run at it, even if it's low odds, let's get this idea from surviving to thriving kind of idea and working with people that are way smarter than myself, the scientific founder we had at the time, these folks, I'm not a first order thinker, but I can, I like working with scientists and clinicians and other people who are first-order thinkers to say, how do you create and how do you sort of motivate and galvanize to say, let's run at this. We know there's a bunch of walls, but crap, it's worth it, right? Because the, the possibility here yeah, is so, so incredible. So, I mean, the show is called Purpose Built. Yeah. And and <clears throat> when when you started in 2000, 2010, right, when yeah. you jumped over to, to Bluebird, so when you, when you made that leap, was it about – did you have a solid purpose that has carried through to today? Has it changed? Or or was that something that, that matured and materialized later? I think the kernel was there at the beginning because there's no reason at that time or even before to get into gene therapy if you wanted a high probability bet or if you want a success. If you want. So the only thing you honestly had to hang on to because it was a dark kind of dark place at that time is because of the mission. And so we very quickly anchored, and this is what I'm proud of, I think, as a company and, and universal to everyone associated with us, we are anchored in that, in that purpose of the, our goal here is the why. Our goal here is this is everybody's worst nightmare to have a, a sort of a disease hit your family or hit your child uh, in this regard, and we'll get somebody to that. So keeping that front of mind at the very beginning was the way we sort of retooled it. And it sits in our namesake, right? The company wasn't called Genetics at the time. Yeah. It was called Genetics at the time. And we changed it to Bluebird. And you can say, well, why are you naming a biotech company Bluebird? No one understands. I'm like, well, you may hate it, but you're going to remember it. So that's one theme. But the other one is if you really look at a Bluebird day, it's the ideal condition. And you're really taking a child who's dying in the case of disease we're really working on first and seeing if we can give a brighter day. So this notion of a bluebird day and the ideal condition. So um, what's the significance of a bluebird? So then the other half of it was in order to get to that bluebird day, the eastern bluebird is a badass little bird. This thing is competitive, mates for life, and it takes no prisoners, right? In that regard, we're like, all right, that's the attitude we need to have as employees to be able to get to the other side, which is create that bluebird day. So they came together, and now it's taken a total life of its own. And that really signifies the energy and the passion that I think we all have on a personal level and as a company. And it's intoxicating, and we'll we'll get to that. That's great. I'm a birder, actually. So that's why I haven't told my partner, but that's why I snuck in – all birds is our name. <laughs> um, so we have a cosmic connection. Exactly. Remember. So, uh, so the company you started, you, you came in and kind of re-energized the company. I know there was ten people at the time, and I want to talk about where you're at today. But um, this is 2010, eight years ago, more or less. And you you come into something that is that a lot of people don't believe in. Uh, and and the company I just checked on the internet yesterday, and and the internet said that you were worth your company was worth seven billion dollars today, and you're still not really making revenue. So uh, I mean I'm I'm uh, you know at Albers we sell we sell 
shoes, consumer products. So it's like, you know, multiply the number of shoes you're selling by some number and that's what you're worth, kind of. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, right. Various, various more complicated factors. And, and, yeah. But um, can you say what has happened in the last eight years that has made a company worth $7 billion, which is, I mean, is larger GDP than probably a lot of countries around the world? Like, what what is... What have you done to show that this thing can really work? And what have you done to show that the future is so bright from a financial perspective? And and I think by background, just to, to let you know where I'm coming from, is the the winning in business and doing something with a purpose that's fantastic to make impact, I think, is the way of the future, personally. So I'm thrilled to see you succeed like this. But I'd love for you to just unpack for people why Bluebird is, is valued so much and is doing so great and what, what's happened. What have you done in the last eight years? Yeah, you know, I uh, as I listen to you speak, I'm I'm sort of as I wouldn't say surprised as you are in, in that regard because we don't tend to think of our or what we've done in in those terms. And I think maybe that's part of 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 why we've gotten to the the point where we've gotten to is we're completely fixated on the science that we do. We're completely fixated on the medicine that we do, and creating a state of 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 almost complete paranoia of not being good enough, right? Being said, we got to learn. We got to keep doing better. We got to understand issues. We got to be able to fall down and get up because nobody gets into this business. And I think early on, and the reason is we had a big vision. We had a big dream. And we had a number of investors who said, and, and tribute to the venture folks who got involved, Third Rock and Arch and TVM and Forbion. These are folks who are putting really, really high stakes, a lot of money at a high stakes bet. But they're doing it because it's important. They're doing it because if it does hit, not only are you going to make a huge difference in the lives of a tremendous number of families and mm. patients, it's the opening of an entire therapeutic area, right? And so Henry Tamir with Genzyme showed that you can go after very rare diseases and make a good business out of it. But it didn't start with an objective of making a good business out of it. It started with there are a number of kids who are dying from a disease, and we've got to do something about it. Mm. And so keeping back to that, that was sort of what I'd say the first few years of Bluebird is convincing people and bringing them on board with that vision and that passion, saying this is where we have to go, and kind of and saying, hey, these guys are just crazy enough. They may actually get it done. So we actually had a better interaction with investors and, I'd say, the press because they, they want to believe, they want to engage, whereas more classical, bigger pharma companies and others are saying, that space seems complicated, not sure if it's going to work. So it was an interesting combination where we actually had investors who very early on, crossover investors like Fidelity mm-hmm. and Capital Research, these are big trillion-dollar funds, who say, you know what, we're, we're, this is worth betting on. And then that has now systematically turned into not just, that's great, that was a dream. Now it's turned into data. There are kids alive today uh, who are fortunate enough to have had our treatment who probably wouldn't be today. There are families who have been transformed, have a different dream today than they would have. It's still, we're relatively speaking, early days. So now it's turned into, wait a minute, this is actually working. Wait a minute, gene therapy is a, is a therapeutic area that can attack, hopefully over time, a lot of diseases. So we've kind of switched from a dreamy company to a reality company, but maintaining that connection to all the outside interesting, the only way you win here and you sustain is staying focused on the why and the science and the medicine and then finding a way to hopefully give physicians and families a choice, a, a, really a choice, which is all you can ask for if you're handed a sentence like this is hope. Right? The last thing you want if you're a parent or a child to say, there's nothing we can do for you. And that, that rings in our heads and that's just – and every minute we're not out there, there are kids, there are families where it is too late. So that, that, that's, that hurts. Yeah, it's amazing. So, so you, it sounds like you're being humble and you're really on the cutting edge of gene therapy in general and one of the few companies that's actually cracked it. And so what, what, are the, it, what are the diseases that you're working on today just to let everyone know and make sure we know and then what's kind of in the future? Yeah, so there's sort of two buckets of our company. One is what we call severe genetic diseases. This is the ones I've mostly been referencing where there's a single – genetic problem. And in there, we're working on a couple diseases. One is called adrena leukodystrophy, mm-hmm. ALD easy for short. It's an easy one. I know it's hard to pronounce. But it, it's kind of our uh, sort of where we started. It's the heart and soul of, of the company. And it's, it's a very rare genetic disease of children where you have basically a, a transporter in one of your uh, cells up in your brain that isn't working. You build up these very long-chain fatty acids in your brain. Make a long story short, it basically just inflames your brain and it causes this almost melting in a very rapid course if you have the cerebral form of the disease. And interestingly enough, one of the cells that sits in your bone marrow eventually turns into those cells I'm talking about in your brain. So if we fix it back in the bone marrow, it gets to the brain. Hmm. That was that's the nice. thesis, but it's like that's a big leap of faith scientifically. So that's one of the diseases we're working on, and we're actually very far along and have shown that the natural course of what the data that we have seems to be 
you know, again, it's early days and the regulators have to look at it, but we're pretty excited about the clinical data we've generated. So that's one disease, and it was chronicled in a movie called Lorenzo Oil a very long time ago. So you, you look at that, and you can't help, if you're human, to look at that and be excited about the possibility of that. And we'll talk about Ethan a little later. There's a bunch of examples where you can see when the disease is not treated or doesn't go well, it's just horrifying. The other two buckets uh, on that side is thalassemia and sickle cell. Thalassemia, you can't make enough blood to stay alive uh, unless you're given these transfusions because you're, you're not a functioning uh, hematopoietic stem cell system. And the other one is sickle cell disease, which I think you're familiar with um, typically sure. where you make blood, but it sickles and it causes all kinds of things, uh, pain and the like, but also greatly reduced lifespan. So the average age- And generally affects African-American population. Generally affects, yeah. So yeah. the average lifespan in the U.S. is 44 years old, wow. which is not good enough. It's not acceptable, right? So those are the three main diseases that are furthest along. And then we also have, and I can explain this later, but it same kind of platform also works in oncology. And that's where we're working with companies like Celgene and there are others who've now got some drugs approved where you're really taking your immune system and using the setup I just described to you to point the immune system to attack the cancer. So those are the, the platforms we work on, and all of them have the potential to be what I'd say on the transformative side. And the, the blood disease is certainly a one-time potentially curative. And that's where you just kind of your mind races to, my gosh, right, this, is, this could be amazing. Yeah, it's incredible. You know, I think shows called Purpose Built. It's about doing things bigger than just making money. So, uh, you know, Nick, tell me, I, I don't think there's a better way to capture some of what you're trying to do than, than in some of these stories. And I, I've had the good fortune of hearing you speak before, but uh, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to share a story. I believe his name is called Darren, mm-hmm. uh, that I recall. And I think that'd be a great way to just kind of capture capture some of what you're doing. Yeah, you you know, I have a hard time. Uh, I'm, I'm, I have five daughters at home, and I married my high school sweetheart. I'm sort of a emotionally wired, uh, and I, I have a tendency to cry an awful lot. I, I cry at work probably at least once a week um, because what we do is just, just – it sort of just gets at you. And this was a story that wasn't preordained. It wasn't planned. It was two people at Bluebird who, who decided to do something really nice for someone. This was uh, Brittany and Marceline, and Marceline had a, a, her sort of a nephew of hers who was – who was only 10, 11 years old and had been struggling with cancer for years. And he, a young, uh, young, young boy named Darren, lived just outside of Boston. They said, you know what? He loves science. He loves it because he's been in hospital his whole life. Why don't we bring him in and make him chief scientific officer for the day? I didn't hear about this till it happened. I was actually, all of a sudden, uh, we say, hey, we're doing a clap-in. And in, out of the elevator comes Darren and his mom, and the entire company's lined up. We clap him in. He goes into a conference room. We give him a jacket that has his name on it. it he gets a business card where he says he's the chief scientist. And then he meets with every line head in the company for, for 15 minutes and gets to decide whatever he wants. Uh, unfortunately, he fired like 25% of them. <laughs> uh, but we had an absolute blast where he just basically – lived and, and expressed himself and engaged in a way where you're like, he's in the middle of his treatment. He recognizes he may have very little time left. And I'm sitting with him eating his favorite. We had a, a cheeseburger truck, so we had cheeseburgers with him. I'm sitting with his mom and, 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 and myself, and we're talking, and, and all of a sudden they're telling the story, and the mom starts to break down. And I start to break down, and then Darren puts his hand on her and says, Mom, it's going to be okay. God has a plan for me. And I'm sitting there going, here's the 11-year-old in the room who has complete control over the situation and recognizes it. And, and that, those stories just sort of go on, and he's become now this, this cult figure inside the company where he just represents what we're trying to avoid, right? Why is it fair that a 12-year-old who – so he passed about, about nine months later, and uh, I went to his funeral. I spoke at his funeral, and it was just, I mean, over the top. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's amazing. I, and, and I think, uh, I, that's why doing the work that you're doing is, is certainly more, more than just making a buck. So you, you got to take these stories and, and ground them in something that's memorable and that everyone at the company can hang on to, particularly when you're growing as fast as you are. Um, so talk about how you, how you've done that. Like, I, I know you guys talk a lot Public, when you talk publicly, you talk a lot about um, some of the purpose, some of the underlying values of the company. So maybe just add, share how you how you translate these stories into uh, kind of making a company run really well. You know, I think the biggest danger 
is abusing a story like Darren's, or I can tell you about Ethan with ALD. I can tell you about Cameron. We can go down the list about Lakia. We can go down the list of, of folks. And, and the danger with that is that somehow you trivialize it. Somehow you make it about actually the company and the and being successful. And you, you effectively sully the entire thing, right? So I think we're hmm. extremely cautious about that saying, how do we connect? How do we connect to what we're trying to do but be super, super respectful of it at the same time. And I think that's part of it. It has to be real. It can't just be words, right? And so when we talk about how we translate into the company from day one, it's always been just, it hasn't really been, it's been thoughtful. And I think we try to come at it from different angles, but it's never really wired. It's never really like you just sort of sit and map it out and you plan it out because I think then all of a sudden, and I've been a fan of never writing this down, saying our ethos, our culture, our, our reason for being, Kind of this thing that hovers above the table. We all know what it looks like and feels like, but don't try to write it down because you're not going to be able to capture it because it's captured in these stories. And it's captured not just in the stories of the patients we're treating, but every single employee at Bluebird has come to Bluebird either because they want to engage in these stories or they have a story. And so we just, I think, have set up an environment, you know, partly on purpose because it's just natural. The other part of it is I think just it's organically built into a place where just be yourself. Right. So be yourself, be collaborative and and excuse the French, but don't be an asshole. Right. Because what we're here for is way more important than any one of us. And don't ever forget that. And as long as you remember that principle and the other principle we have, which is take what we do really seriously, but not yourself. Let's have some fun as we do this, because this is a this is a dark thing we're trying to fix. So how do we keep lightness in here? So that whole mindset has led to a very organic, it's almost state of being that we have as a company that just allows you to not get too caught up in a in a valuation or a stock price. We were very nervous when we went public. Are we all of a sudden going to start talking about things like EPS and this other stuff? I'm like, no, right? Why would we do that? Because it's actually not in the interest of a shareholder. Their interest in us is to make sure we stay focused on the thing that actually we're trying to create that eventually will create value for all the, the stakeholders we have. But that's actually not easy to do. But it's now become this this complete heartbeat inside the company that's not just me. I kind of joke a lot about saying I can almost certainly tear down this culture faster than anyone, but I can't build it, right? I can just be part of it. And the reason for it is if I misbehave. And there are things like, and you and I have talked about this a little bit when we had dinner last night, about there are, there are things like that are really important in companies as you grow. GNA policies, right? What's your travel policy? What is your, your mindset for who gets parking spots, Right. What is your mindset for? And these sound trivial, but they're not because every little decision inside a company defines your culture and people miss those little things. They get lazy. And so we really try as a student body to police those things. We don't have a single office in the in the company. Right. We, we didn't finish our yeah, ceilings on purpose. Open, open, open layout. Kind open of layout. We didn't finish the ceilings. People say, why don't you finish the ceilings? I said, because we're not done. By the way, it was cheaper. Right. And so how do you think we don't ever have any signs that say Bluebird on our buildings? Why spend $50,000 on a sign so someone can find us when you got Google Maps? I mean, these are small little things that sound trivial. And why is a CEO thinking about that? Well, I think that's a big part of my job yeah, is to totally say, agree. keep grounding this. If you running a company success in a way is a hell of a lot harder than running a success in, in you know, in when things aren't going well. Mm-hmm. So I love as much as I don't want them, but I love the downtime, the, the downturns, because every single one of our major step forwards has come because shit hit the fan. Yeah. And scientifically or something. And that's when we rally. And that's when you see people's true fibers. And if they really believe in the cause, that's when they double down. So how, how do you codify this, though, into some kind of vernacular that's memorable? So you can't, you, I mean, you can't walk over every time someone's booking a trip and say, hey, hey, are you uh, being thoughtful about this and not flying business at $12,000 in a trip to Switzerland or wherever you guys go. (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, Uh, I I think the answer to that is I kind of like my wife's a physician, a family doc, and one of the things she tells me about kids and treating kids and babies is as long as a baby's crying, you know you're okay. Baby stops crying, you know you're screwed, right? (laughs) And I think part of the reason for that is, right, there's a signal. So as a company, we're going to keep crying. We're going to keep making sure that we care about those little things. And then it becomes basically, it's just people know it when they're being Silly. Someone came in to me and said, hey, one of the guys that works for me, you know, had a dinner and they had an excessive price on the wine. I think we need a policy for how much we can pay for wine. I said, really? Why don't you just pull the person aside and say, you're being a knucklehead. Don't do it again. Right. There's a there's we don't need a policy to regulate good judgment. And so there is a, a mindset in there where if you again, if you come back to is this really worthy, good use of, of Bluebird's time and energy? 
that's where that starts to become pretty self-policing. Yeah, and and so you you also call your mission. I liked what what, what I read uh, about it. It was called Recode for Life. Yeah. So, can you talk about what that means, and and maybe underneath that, just unpack what 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 do you guys say inside the company that helps people make decisions when you're not when you're not making the decision for them? Which yeah, as often obviously. Give yeah, so sense. Recode for Life is is daunting. Um, I wasn't actually we 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 we've tried multiple times over the last years to figure out how do we capture what we believe we have. And I've been against it because I'm kind of like, ah, right? I, I can only describe it through stories. Otherwise, you, you bring it down. But this exercise that we worked with sort of under this notion of how do we find our true north turned out to be really, really powerful. And this notion of, of how do you recode for life, if you really think about that, it certainly ties to our science, right? Everything we've talked about is recoding. But it really ups the bar. Right, Because what we are here to do is basically to create life, to try to allow people to live lives fully. And then now you bring it to another level of saying, okay, if you have this kind of science, so you recode the science, well, how do you recode the status quo? Because everything we've talked about here actually is disruptive all the way down the chain. The type of clinical studies that you should be running on this, the regulatory mindset to how you assess these things, the commercial mindset. But how do you bring this to the hands of physicians? How do payers, governments handle these types of treatments? Because it's disruptive all along the chain. So this notion of Recode for Life has is, is is sort of been it ladders or has three major components, right, which, are, which capture in more detail than we generally uh, share publicly. But if you ever come on the inside, you'll feel it. But it's sort of caring deeply, right, in, in, a, in a big way uh, and, and pioneering with purpose uh, in, a, in a big way and then making it personal. Uh, we really fundamentally allow ourselves and encourage people in their own way to make it absolutely personal. Because you know what? Don't don't distance. Don't put up walls. Don't do this. Just let it let it let it ride, right? And be yourself. Part of the reason I wear the, the kind of largely ugly clothes that I wear is just kind of that's my thing. That's what I wear. It doesn't assess me and what's in my brain. And I'm not going to judge someone else for what they're wearing. And I'm not going to change it if I'm sitting in front of a shareholder or if I'm sitting in front of an you know anyone, right? Just because that's me, right? And and everyone should be themselves as well. So there's an element there of making it personal that becomes really important. And that comes to if you really respect this notion of recoding at that level, then you're willing to say, that's my purpose. And then every decision goes through that prism. And I remember uh, Henry Tamir sitting with me, who's the founder of Genzyme. He's a legend in our industry. And he, he broke the mold and opened the door for all of us to think about going after diseases that are not very common. And he came in uh, the day after we went public uh, and just sat with me for an hour. It was really nice of him. And I remember it because he sat and looked me in the eyes. He goes, okay, you may think that yesterday was a success. And I said, well, you know, pretty happy. It went pretty well. We, we did ABS. He goes, yeah, no. He goes, the prism you always need to look through is the patient prism. Every decision you make, put it through that prism. If it makes sense there, then really question yourself for why you're not doing it. And that has haunted me in a, in a good way ever since because I think if you do that, it just creates a beacon. That's, you, can't, you can't put out that flame. You can't sort of lose your way if that's what you're erring towards in, in our world when there are so many forces. I love that. And I think um, when you talk about going into the, the prison the prism of looking through the customer lens is something I think absolutely every business, good business does and should do. Uh, but your industry has had some issues with that and particularly around pricing that I'd love to get into. Um, but before we do that, I'd love to just reground it and we're, we're going to get back to what that means around a lot of things in your industry. Cause I think it's, it's a really interesting situation right now. I think it, it's touching a lot of political nerves and uh, every person in America, I can certainly uh, a test is frustrated when you go to pick up a some kind of drug from the from the pharmacy, and and uh, you get ripped off. But even in these these rare medical conditions, I think they're it's exacerbated to an extreme. So I really want to dive into that. But but before we do that, I'd love to just kind of capture why you have this purpose driven philosophy around the company and ground it in another story. You told one about a, a kid named Darren, and I know there's uh, another another person named Ethan that that's kind of got a a big story that's in the ethos and uh, the DNA of Bluebird. So I'd love it if you could just maybe share a little bit of that. Yeah. Ethan Zakes, he's, uh, he's got a special place in, in, in 2010, 11, we're just getting going. I got a phone call from uh, Ethan's dad and said, Hey, can I get your help? He has this d disease called ALD, adrenal leukodystrophy, and he's in, 
you're kind of progressing very rapidly. Is there anything you can do? And at the time, there wasn't much we could do. We put him in connection with people. To make a long story short, he was able to go through a treatment, but within a very short period of time, uh, he didn't make it. And the Brad, he's a, he's a fellow CEO of a biotech company, lives in Seattle, sort of the height of, of sort of what I'd say medical universe. And the, the real tragic story behind Ethan and why it's sort of in our bones now is Ethan was a normal kid, normal six, seven-year-old kid doing his thing. And then he started kind of just goofing off a little bit. He wasn't paying as much attention in school. Then all of a sudden, on the playground, he was being disruptive. And mom and dad couldn't quite figure it out. They went to doctors. No one said, it's all fine. It's just ADHD kind of stuff. And then that went on for a little bit. And then all of a sudden, there's a moment that Ethan's mom talks about where they're in the supermarket. And they're walking outside and they're putting the bags away. And Ethan's trying to balance on a curb. And he can't. And mom's intuition said, uh-uh, something's wrong. And they get him in, and then they figure out, lo and behold, this is now a year later, uh, lo and behold, that he has ALD, which is effectively, at that point in time in his stage, was too late. And they did some desperate treatments, and he, he didn't make it. And I'm remembered by that story. I show videos of all, I have all his family videos uh, that they've been kind enough to share with us. We've gotten very close with the Zakes family because they've done remarkable but it, it just reminds you that, one, timing is is just totally unfair, right? Because at this moment, he probably could have been in one of our clinical studies, and he probably could have taken advantage of gene therapy that we now have been fortunate enough to develop, et cetera, et cetera. And what did the family do? And this is a big part of the inspiration. They have made a big cause out of how do we get newborn screening? So there's no child. And lo and behold, them and they galvanized others. Now, in many states in the U.S., there's newborn screening. It's been nationally approved, and they're working it mm. through the system. So hopefully there are no more Ethans that happen. And that, at least not the chance to have the best possible innovation at the best possible time. So there's so much richness in that story that, again, we get back to this notion of purpose, right? And how do you not abuse it, but how do you lever it to do something that's good? And that is, Ethan is at the very top of that list uh, for all of us. So have you, have you cured people with ALD now? Well, we, the word cure, we're always dangerous to say, but we certainly have. We've, uh, the data that we have in the trial that we've done with the 15, 17 patients, we almost certainly uh, have diverted them from the trajectory they would have been on. Now, obviously, we have to see how that plays out over time, sure. but we hope, we hope that that can give them... Uh, a, a sort of a life lived that is, is certainly a lot better, and hopefully it can get into the cure. And, and how far how far away is this therapy for ALD from from going bigger than teens and into thousands of people? Yeah, so uh, it'll probably only ever get into hundreds because that's how many there are in, wow. in the U.S. and so forth. Um, but I think the idea here is uh, that we, in the next year or two, that we'll be filing that for, for approval with the regulatory agencies in U.S. and in Europe. So we're very, very close, and the data is pretty, knock on wood, pretty tremendous. And uh, it's been published in a lot of the big journals because this is something that this was one of the early indicators to the industry that, oh, my goodness, gene therapy is working. The first two kids that we ever treated back were published in Science in 2009, and that was what actually got us to invest in Bluebird. And why did that happen? And this is a longer story than you're going to want on this show here, but it dates back to three sisters who had been dramatically affected by the Salzman sisters by ALD, and they wouldn't take no for an answer because there was a vector that could, or meaning a treatment like ours, sitting on the shelf in a company in California. They went there and said, listen, you guys aren't going to do it. We're going to take it, give it to an, investor, an investigator in France. And they did. He treated, he treated these two boys. They're still alive today. And they became, honestly, the colonel behind Bluebird. If they didn't do what they did, those three moms, we would not be where we are today. So it's those types of things where it's sort of the power of one. You can get so much out of that. Yeah, you know, I, get, I get really worked up over that. So, so um, I'm going to do, do a quick little rant here. The, <laughs> I, I, I have asthma, and I, and I get a Ventolin inhaler once in a while from the pharmacy. And I think in the last, like, five years, it's gone up in price substantially. My insurance covers most of it, but it just annoys me that it's hundreds of dollars for something I've been taking since I was two years old. It's really nothing has changed in it. So they've obviously gotten patents and elongated the patents and done some some little dumb tweak to make me keep paying. The EpiPen is another one that I think hit the national news last year or two years ago, whenever it was. And it just drives me absolutely crazy because no one's looking at it through the customer prism. And as you, as you said earlier, now you're talking about a treatment for something that only affects hundreds of people, not even thousands. And there's probably millions with asthma taking my, my kind of inhaler. So price, 
So this thing that you you do, you take you take uh, stem cells and you essentially infect it with a virus, put it back in someone's body, and make sure it uh, it it takes away this condition. Uh, that's obviously extremely expensive. Uh, if you want to share how much that cost, I'm sure that would be great. You may not be able to, but how how do you how the hell do you go price that thing? Like, what do you how do you think about? But you could probably charge five million dollars because it's going to save someone's life who might die in like a year. So how do you how do you think about that? Yeah, that was that was a lot, Joey. Uh, in there, let let let's let's unpack that a little bit and back it up in the sense that. Um, what we have to be careful about is I've been personally very critical of our industry as well of, of what I'd say market failures and or just silly sort of uh, inappropriate behaviors, whether those are price increases. But also when you think about EpiPen and you think about Martin Shrelly and you think about these types of things, those are ones that are just they're failures, right? Those things should not happen. And we got to be really careful not to paint the entire industry with that brush. Yeah, that's what happens, though. Bad, and that's what happens. Bad, and I, and bad I think, apple. Bad apple. But I think there is a lot of detail in there that is really hard to communicate. That is, look, um, I don't believe that we should defend our industry and our approaches by saying, look, what we do is really expensive and really high risk. So we have to have these disproportionate returns to pay off that risk. Listen, to me, that's kind of in the so what column. That is a logic that, that is a kind of a defensive logic. definitely not what logic. your patient would say. No, and I'm like, listen, nobody really cares about that logic. That's on you. But you should, and I do believe in this, that if you're going to take a disproportionate risk that is disproportionately expensive, you should have the opportunity to have a disproportionate return, or the math does not work. And so most people get that. That is sort of venture investing sure. at its premium. That said, it can't be abusive, right? And you have to find a way to make sure that you can unapologetically fund the innovation, but at the same time not be abusive. And you certainly have highlighted things that I think are abusive. And we need to find ways to make sure that that doesn't happen. But also, if you over-regulate and you overstep and you price-regulate, what happens? You're going to kill innovation at the same time. Mm-hmm. You don't want that. So there is a balance in here, and I think the approach – that Bluebird, to the extent we can affect this, is yes, we are sitting with a potential treatment that is has to get, I mean, the value of it has to get to the patients, right? And any payer, any mom, any dad would say it has to get to the patients. So it is fraught with the potential to say, and you were referencing, say, can you abuse that situation? And if you believe anything I've said over the last half an hour on our culture and this and the other thing, you say, well, that doesn't jive with a culture of recoding for life or recoding the mm-hmm. status quo or saying you're purpose-driven if you then go forth and abuse the system. So we have no intent or desire. We want to be a catalyst for this change. So what's it going to cost? And what's your, so I'm not going to share what it's going to cost, but I'll lay out how we're going to do it. right? And that's what we came out with just a few weeks ago, even though we don't have a drug yet on the market. We said, look, we actually think there are a couple things that need to happen. One, we do need to be clear about the value that we bring. Because remember, the big challenge here is this is a one-time potentially curative treatment. We're used to, like your asthma inhaler, where you get, a, you get a dose, you get it every quarter, you get it whatever, and you pay as you get it, right, for as long as you use it. I'm going to treat these patients, we're going to treat them one time. And then so you create sort of value like surgery, over, right? over the life. It's kind of like a surgery. But how do you think about that, right? How do you think about that pricing model? Because I'm giving you potentially a cure up front that has value for life. How do you think through that value model? And that's a bit of a... A very complex thing for the system to digest. They're not ready to digest it. So the principles that we've laid out and said, look, what we should do is say, listen, we're going to have a model where we share risk and we only get paid if it works. And we get paid over a defined period of time. So over five years, equal installments on a on the how we can assess what we think a fair value for this is over the lifetime. But you, again, you only pay if you if you sort of if it works, and you do it for a defined period, not just for the rest of your life. You you pay every year because you got this cure back in you know twenty years ago. So what's happening there is one, you're giving back value to the system in years six through however long, hopefully this child uh, and or adult has sort of lives their life, right? And at the same time, you're being reasonable about the value that you can bring back into the company to fund what we do again and again. And so in there, we're trying to find a balance that says we understand the payer problem. We understand not only individual affordability issues, we also understand the system affordability issues, right? Because we could, you could take advantage of a dying child with ALD and say, we're going to do X. What are you going to do? That is and, not I mean, you're, you're going to have the only treatment for ALD when, well, if this works. I mean, this is the only, certainly, gene therapy type yeah. treatment that would be out there. And they can take higher risk other treatments, 
But again, this is where how are you reasonable? How yeah. are you balanced in what you do? So, so my asthma, if I if I take a spray and I still we and I'm, I'm still wheezing, I would get my money back. Yeah, I mean, it's these are tough things to compare, right? Okay, because <laughs> asthma and antibiotics and vaccine, it's a very different. But it ball sounds of wax. wildly different from what I've experienced in healthcare. It it is different because I think what we're trying to do, and it comes back to just you've said this, I think, as you've communicated around your shoes and how you guys approach what you do and the model you've taken is, well, just kind of do what you think is the right thing to do. And so we take a very simple, almost intentionally naive approach to this and say, listen, it feels like the right thing to do is if you give a lifelong treatment, well, how would you expect a payer to pay for that all up front? That seems unreasonable. Yeah, absolutely seems unreasonable. So how do you find a balance in there and sit at the table? And we've had actually remarkable feedback after this this was went in the Wall Street Journal and and, and we recently had a New York Times article on our sickle cell disease program where you really see what these types of treatments can do for patients. Take a sickle cell, for example, right? It is these patients, unfortunately, and, and kids are in and out of ERs. They live in constant pain and they most of the time have or on average have a dramatic shortened lifespan. So we said, what if you can dramatically improve the quality of life? Meaning these folks who have none of these symptoms I just described and they live twice as long. Let's just take that scenario. There's value in living an extra year, right? It's not necessarily valuable in the sense of, yeah, if you, if you pass away, you're not expensive anymore, right? But that's no way to go through life to think that way. Mm-hmm. And that's not a value system we subscribe to, I think, in the U.S. or hopefully globally. So we think about and how we measure the value that our medicines bring. It's quality of life and life extension. And then hopefully a huge benefit of all the things that the system used to pay for goes back to the system. That doesn't mean our medicines are going to be cheap, not just because, yeah, it's expensive to make. Well, hopefully we'll get better and better at that over time. It's because the value equation is net-net very positive for the yeah, system. Yeah, for the whole system. Yeah, yeah, so then continue to fund. But you got to unapologetically fund the investment without being egregious. And you certainly have highlighted the egregious ones. Yeah. And I'd be first so is, in line. Is Big Pharma pissed about this? Are they happy? Or what, what's their reaction to what you guys are doing? Um, I, I, don't think, I don't think they're pissed. They, I think they are perhaps saying, well, better you than me to fight this battle right now because you got nothing to lose, <laughs> right? Bluebird's kind of like, we don't have products, we don't have revenue. I don't even know what P stands for in the P&L, right? Um, yet, hopefully. And yeah. So the we are unencumbered, but I do see uh, companies like Novartis and a small gene therapy company like Spark, they're definitely stepping in this direction as well. And guess what? The payers are coming over too saying, hey, let's really think through this together. And that's the key. If we have an attitude that we want to solve this problem, let's start with what is a very tractable problem with definitive value for the patients and the system. If we can't solve it here, so I'm very optimistic, but then again, I'm probably pathologically optimistic or I wouldn't be in the business that I'm in. Yeah, well, it's it's interesting challenge you're, you're tackling. Yeah, so it's show, fun. show's it's called uh, Purpose Built. We're talking with Nick Leshley, who's the CEO of Bluebird Bio, uh, and, and really about companies in general that, that, that do a lot more than and just look out for their shareholders, and they're really driving towards something that, that really affects society in a positive way. And I think Nick is a fantastic example. Uh, so, Nick, let's let's uh, shift a little bit away from pricing, uh, which I think is we could probably talk about for a while. <laughs> um, and let's talk about um, – you, you mentioned that you you went public. So I'd love to just talk about your investors a little bit. You you came into this, this kind of wild project in 2010 – you you took the company public in 2013, and in total, I think you've raised something like $3 billion. Is that about right? Yep. So $3 billion people have given you. Um, Not quite given, but yeah, I got you. Yeah, I mean, they expect it back, <laughs> like multiples of it, but they, but they, but they let, they're, you, they're fun they let you take care of it for a while. Um, so talk to me about the investors and your interaction when you're talking about the blend of purpose, the blend of... Uh, of of making money and how those two balance. And I think pricing is part of that because you could probably make a lot more money if you wanted to take the more typical approach of what we've seen, at least some of the bad actors in the industry. So how do you, um, how, how's that interaction been with private investors when you were a private company? And then how's that changed since you've gone public? Um, I, it, you know, it, talk a little bit about the IPO too, because I think that's a fun, fun little moment. Yeah, no, absolutely, I will. I think it's it's certainly one of our of our moments where it's a transition, uh, but it didn't change any of the fundamentals, and we'll come back to that. But the the founding of the company, sort of refounding in 2010, was with a set of venture folks who I wouldn't even really declare venture. These folks were on a mission just as much, and I give them huge credit for being willing to put a tremendous amount of money towards a low probability event. 
that is sort of has this sort of dark outlook. Do you in, think, in do you think that's community. normal or is that is that something that was unique to your situation? Well, I think it's a little bit unique, but also there were now inklings. So when Third Rock got involved, Third Rock Ventures, there's our whole goal is to say, well, how do you how do you invest kind of ahead of the curve? Right. And so there clearly was a mindset saying if this works, it could be tremendous, important to the field and to a whole bunch of things. But there's a reasonably good chance that it doesn't work. But that's that's venture. Right. And to the credit of Third Rock and Arch and a couple of European firms, they said, let's go for it. And uh, I showed up, uh, we kind of did it in 2010, and I, was, I became the full-time CEO just a few months later. And they were, they were in it. I mean, they, but then we started the rebuild of the culture. I showed up in cargo shorts and a T-shirt to the board meeting. And my, my European investors that was, that was who an were intentional in like, message you sent. Well, they were like in three-piece suits, right? They're like, what is this? <laughs> and I was like, what? And they go, what are you wearing? And I'm like, I'm wearing the clothes that I wear normally. And they're like, but aren't you a CEO? I go, well, what does that mean? He goes, well, aren't CEOs supposed to wear suits? I go, why? Right? So that set a tone that was, you know, we were obviously joking around a little bit, but it was an intentional signal to say, listen, we're about what we do here. We're not about sort of these other layers that people like to put on. And that actually set a tone also for the investors. Then quickly after that, we had crossover investors, Fidelity. Uh, there's Irene from Fidelity. I sort of believed early on. We had the capital group from L.A., a guy named Craig Gordon. He after a 45-minute discussion in a lobby in L.A., he said, I'm all in. And it was the first uh, private investment they had ever made as a, as a firm. This is like a trillion-dollar fund. And they have been with us ever since. And part of it was not because I think either one of those had some calculus saying, I think I can make a lot of money on Bluebird. They didn't even know if we are going to be able to go public. They just were captured by what we were trying to do. They saw the story of Ethan. They saw the data that was coming out. They saw the commitment in the team's eyes, and they said, shit, let's go for it. And I think we've kept that mindset uh, since then as we went and went public. And I, we were nervous about going public because people are saying when you go public, things change. You have to start behaving differently. You have to start doing A, B, and C. And we politely said, no, we're not going to subscribe to that. I didn't wear a suit on my IPO roadshow, right? I wore what I normally wear because why would I want to sit here and all of a sudden create this pretense? Uh, to that. And thank goodness I had a, uh, my chief medical officer dressed a little nicer. So we kind of had an average <laughs> dress code that actually didn't lead to disrespectful. I did not wear Your average shorts. was business casual. Average was business casual. But the point was, look, these guys are a little bit different, a little bit quirky, but they seem to be doing it for the right reasons. Don't know what to think of them. And that has now evolved into, well, hopefully we can build credibility to say, we're going to keep doing what we said we're going to do. When we don't know something, we're going to tell you we don't know. We're not going to do quarterly calls just because, right? We, we went public, said, okay, now let's set up quarterly calls. And I, and I said to our, our lawyers, I said, um, do we have to do quarterly calls? He goes, well, everyone does them. I go, that wasn't the question. I said, do we have to do quarterly calls legally? He goes, no. I go, okay, well, then why would we do a quarterly call? When we have nothing to say necessarily on the quarter, why don't we just talk to investors and others when we have something to say? That's amazing. I mean, you're, you're, when you're solving long, it, almost intractable problems, and you have to talk about these things quarterly, there's, there's like a tension there. So totally. how, how's that gone? Because yeah, I, I mean, that, that, that's, that quarter-to-quarter as, mindset. As a lot of entrepreneurs aspiring to be public or something like that, those things oh. sound like well, terrible part of your day. It is a well. One, I, I, I don't have, I don't have to worry about. It. I don't spend a week praying for quarterly yeah, calls. So I read a press release and say, "Hey, this is what we did in the last quarter." Don't get me wrong; we spend a lot of time engaging with our investors because actually, I've been very excited about being public. You learn a lot. The pattern recognition of investors, especially the types of investors we have, remarkable the amount of value we actually get. So I don't see it as a, as a brain drain or as this thing I have to do. I see it as a way to really get insights into how do we continue to evolve. But very fearful of this quarter-to-quarter brain drain, right? This notion of sort of, I call it EPS slaves or a version of that, right? Saying, no, no, that is not. This is, that is not the life cycle our industry lives and breathes by. So how are you respectful of the investors? But at the same time, Tom, look, if you're looking at us quarter-to-quarter, Good luck, right? Go invest somewhere else because that's not, you know, you're gonna, you're gonna, your stomach's going to turn upside down because we're going to have an exciting quarter. All of a sudden, then the data's a little different, and I can walk you through examples. And they're going to say, oh, I thought you said X, right? I'm saying, well, listen, science isn't linear. I love, so, I love it. I mean, I mean we, we uh, at Allbirds were very long-term thinking in terms of our impact on the environment, so it's sustainability-focused. We share Fidelity as investor. We also have T. Rowe Price, um, similar kind of crossover yep. deal, and they're – I've had the exact same experience with those guys, and it's very heartening to see that from the people who who manage the most money in the world that are thinking at this blend that we need to do something more for society than just make them the maximal return in the shortest period of time. Yeah. So, so I mean, do you think that that's 
is is that what's going to start happening more and more? Is that is that the way of the future? Are you an optimist in that sense, or I, I'm a total optimist in that regard because I think it's just almost even if you're being the most selfish CEO in the world, if you have a vision that is bigger than a financial return or others, it is the most selfish thing you can do for the return. And I think it's almost a misnomer to say, well, I need to focus on quarterly. No, actually, if you can get people galvanized about a bigger dream and a bigger opportunity that's bigger than them, that's bigger than the company, you're going to have infinitely bigger returns. And I think Warren Buffett said a nice, I, I, I don't exactly know where he said it, and I hope he said it because I've been quoting him, which is you get the investors you deserve. And also I've extended it, you get the employees you deserve, right? You get the board you deserve depending on how you behave and how consistent and what kind of mindset you have. So if you want to play into, because people create all kinds of lovely things around a quarterly call, around whatever it may be, and they build up all these sort of mini fiefdoms, and I call it institutional plaque, around all these things that actually at the end of the day don't really matter, right? Let's really just get real with what matters here and try to push away all these other things that quite honestly are a distraction to the cause. I love that. I love that word, that phrase, institutional plaque. Yeah, like it happens in calendars. It, it happens off. in mindsets. Everything. Floss it off. All right. What it, what so it. we only got a couple minutes yeah. left. I'd love to just kind of uh, have you share what does the future of Bluebird look like, and and maybe maybe since we're talking about purpose driven businesses, you know, talk about what's the future look like from a financial perspective. What's the future look like from an impact perspective? Well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to add one there because I think the, the most important piece of our future is if we can stay authentic, if we can stay true to our cause, if we can remember that the most important sort of mindset slash uh, phenotype that we have in the company is grounded in humility, if we can do that, right, I believe we can change the world in the context of gene therapy. If we get caught up in anything but that, Right. In the sense that we got to be reminded of the why and being really true to that. So that's kind of one principle. So in the future, my biggest hope is no matter how big we get, is that that is not lost. If it's lost, we will regress towards whatever mean that everybody else does. And we'll start making decisions through the wrong prisms. Um, I am hopeful that over a period of time we have in just a few years, we have four medicines that are in the hands of physicians and families to make choices for themselves. I never want to be a company where objective is to sell drug. You sell shoes. We don't sell drugs. What we do is we provide an option for a mom, a dad, a child, a physician to thoughtfully say, is this the right thing? This is the biggest decision of their lives. Our objective is to make sure they have the opportunity to actually consider our treatment for that and then let the chips fall where they may. But again, there's a different mindset that says sell drug versus provide that. So if we can keep that mindset in the future with the hopeful four medicines that come forward. And then the other piece, which I think will lead lead to long-term broad, I'd say stakeholder, not just shareholder success, is if we can take all the things we've learned in an incredibly complicated space of gene therapy and just almost maniacally return it back into how we make the next decision and how we develop the next medicine. So the stuff that's below the waterline inside of Bluebird, we haven't talked about. All the science, all the future products that we believe in, that is actually what I'm arguably most excited about in the next five years because hopefully the medicines that are heading towards the market right now. We'll get there and we'll do it the right way. We'll do it blue style as we hope to do it. And, Love it. Um, doing it so blue cool. style. It's amazing work you're doing, Nick. And thanks for, thanks for joining us on Purpose Built. It's been a great pleasure to chat with you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.